Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, everyone. It's Hugh Ballou. My guest today is a dear friend and advisor for Center Vision Leadership Foundation, Jeffrey Fulgham. And um, we're both in Virginia. He's on the other side, Richmond. And uh, we, of course, are in uh, Lynchburg. And you know about me, you know about the Nonprofit Exchange because we host this. Well, this is episode number 302. We've been hosting it for a bunch of years, eight plus years, and we've had some really important subjects. We haven't really dug in to the topic today, ensuring fundability. Yes, you're doing great work. Yes, you have good products and services. Yes, you've got brilliant people. But have you translated it into quantifiable descriptions that funders can understand the value of why they're funding? So before we get into the topic today, I'm going to ask um, Jeffrey Fulgham to talk a little bit about his background in funding so you'll understand you know, his, his expertise and background. So Jeffrey, welcome. And please share with people a little bit about you. Sure. Thanks, Hugh. Appreciate you inviting me. Been on the other side of this, listening to a lot of these over the years, and uh, it's, it's fun to be on this side of the, of the microphone. So um, I started in fundraising a little over 30 years ago, uh, nonprofit management. Started in senior leadership as director of development and moved up to uh, executive director uh, in an, I started in healthcare, moved up to an arts organization, uh, was uh, executive director there, uh, also did some historic preservation work, uh, then went into, uh, again, back into director of development in uh, monuments and memorials, working for the National D-Day Memorial, and then uh, worked my way into vice president of development and finance there, and ultimately was uh, co-president uh, when I left. Uh, switched again and went into advancement at uh, a family ministry and then uh, finished up in uh, botanical garden and uh, doing work, uh, some work in conservation, uh, which I still do as a, as a board chairman. So I've been fundraising for, uh, as a professional for about 30 years and as a professional and volunteer for probably about 30, almost 35 years. Wow. Wow. So um, you've seen some things probably change over that time, but fundamentally, there's some consistent factors that help nonprofit leaders become fundable, correct? Correct. Yeah. And, and you're correct. A lot has changed. And uh, frankly, much of it, I don't personally don't think is for the better. I think um, we've gotten away from and, and we see this everywhere. It's just not in fundraising. It's just more obvious and pronounced in fundraising So because it's so dramatically opposed to the way it should be. But you see a lot of transactional fundraising now. And, uh, you know, organizations are busy. People are busy. Uh, organizations are trying to save money. They're trying to make ends meet. So they're usually understaffed. They usually have people in positions that may not necessarily have enough experience to be to be doing those jobs without someone supervising them who understands 
what should be happening. I'm not saying that person shouldn't be doing that job because the only way we build this up is if we bring in new people and we train them and teach them, but we're not training them real well. We're not teaching them real well. Uh, that's why they're leaving in less than 18 months um, in most cases and either leaving the nonprofit sector completely or they're going job hopping to different organizations trying to find the next great thing, which as we all know, which I'm sure we're going to talk about quite a bit over the next half hour, is this is about relationships. And if you don't have any con continuity with your staff, then you don't have continuity with your donors. And so you're not, you're building relationships and then they're ending and then someone's having to start again and that's ending. So, I mean, you can imagine from a donor perspective, giving to an organization for say five years and having somewhere between two and five development officers coming out to visit you or calling on you. And then we all would say, if we were donors, we all would say, what's going on with this organization that I can't see the same person for more than two years. So there's a, it means we got to have our act together, doesn't it? It does. And, and it's, and we've got to have to have our act together on both sides of the equation. A lot of folks look at the ex, only look at the external. They look at donor relations and they only focus on their outward facing self. And they don't focus on internally creating an internal structure that supports the people that are working there. This is all part of being fundable, is creating an organization that people trust, creating an organization that has people that are trustworthy, which gets to the character and integrity piece of all of this and ensuring fundability. And those individuals that are working in that organization have to go out feeling good about where they work and the people they work for. And it, it's all around a central theme. I don't care what faith you are. There's a stewardship theme. We are stewards of resources that come from others. And for right. us to fully utilize those resources will help us attract more resources. And it's uh, time, talent, and money. It, and so being fundable means people would be attracted to you who would volunteer um, and right. would contribute their talent in kind. Donations are just as valuable when you need things done and you don't quite have enough money. So let's, yeah. in my world, as a, as a conductor, we stand on the, on the podium and we have a music score. Everything's going to happen in that piece of music is written down. What everybody does, when they do it, how fast, all that stuff is written down. And everybody in the choir and the orchestra has their part of that. And what I find very often is people are actually nonprofit leaders and clergy are social entrepreneurs. We have lots of good stuff. Exactly. We don't really think of structure as valuable, but it's the exactly. structure, lack of structure that, that causes a, a, a problems. We hit barriers and people don't understand because we haven't spent the time and invested in creating the really strong value proposition, which means this is what we do differently than everybody else. And then the right. impact of our work, what are the results of what we do? Which in, in my world, those are the two things that are gonna get the interest of a funder. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Yeah, the, and, I, and I talk about this all the time, especially with new organizations that are just forming is a, a lot of them are in a hurry to get to the mission. 
So, and, and you see this all the time in, in folks that you're working with, with Center Vision Leadership Foundation. They wanna get from where they are now to raising money and implementing the mission as fast as possible. And so what they do is they skip over a bunch of steps and then once they get up and running, they go back and they start to realize, oh, we forgot this, we forgot this, we forgot that. And they either figure it out or one of their funders tells them, <laughs> which is definitely not the way you want to hear that you messed up, is a funder saying, hey, we can't fund you because you don't have this or because you don't do this. Or you get a letter from the state that says, hey, you're not licensed to fundraise. And therefore, you need to cease and desist until you file these forms. And if you don't, we're going to fine you X number of thousands of dollars. So, yeah, it's all for me, it's all about creating that foundation to, to build on. And, you know, I mean, biblically, we know that the, the foundation is the rock that we're going to build the house on, right? We got we to gotta build on a firm foundation. And if we build it on sand, then it's going to crumble. It may not crumble tomorrow, and it may not crumble next year, but it's going to crumble at some point. And it's going to be an unfortunate situation because usually when that happens, people lose organizations, lose jobs, lose money, you know, all the things that we're trying to protect end up being compromised. Absolutely. So the, the uh, strategy is your roadmap to where you want to be. And, and the arguments that people give me about not having it is, oh, it limits my creativity. Well, no, it's a container so that you're not spending your effort and your creative energy trying to figure out what to do next. It's really a container for your creativity so you can put right. all your energy in the implementation. And guess what? If it doesn't work, you change it. So it's it's a pathway. And it, number two, it's a communication with your funders about which, what results you're going to attain. And three... It's an engagement tool. So people around you in your organization know what they're supposed to do. And right. all of that, back to what you were talking about, the internal piece of this, we don't think about that as a value that other people respect. And they feel like their money is well spent when there's a high, high performing team that's going to implement. And it's not that you're, I'm a recovering Scottish Presbyterian, as you know, it's not that you're frugal with the money. It's that you have good stewardship of all the resources and you're using them appropriately. So right. in the strategy, you identify the competencies you need and then you can find the right people and then they know what work they're supposed to do. In your strategy also is the funding channels that you're going to need to have. So I did a summary of, uh, this is one of the presentations I've done on streams of revenue for specifically for nonprofits is donations, grants, mm -hmm. plan giving, and then in kind, people will donate facilities, food, printing, media, so that can save you money, even though it's not income, it saves you spending money. Now, you can also do events that, that for-profits do, but we're, we're a for-purpose enterprise, and so we have to generate proceeds. It's not profit in the normal sense it goes to stockholders, it's proceeds to fund our work. So events, events can make money or lose money. Events are also PR, events are also a relationship, but they should be positive in your, in your revenue. Sponsorships, it's where a company spends marketing dollars to connect their brand with your brand. Now in a nonprofit, we really are limited in how we present it. We can't do the traditional heavy sales call to action because that puts us in the limelight of um, 
of unrelated business income. So we have right. to be careful how we present them in a public radio, public television is a good example. They say for more information, go here right. for, for your cruise. And then right. partner money, I created this because it's like uh, churches, rotaries, other service clubs have foundations and they want to see things happen. They don't necessarily do them, but through their foundation, through their giving in the community, they support right. like a, a free clinic or food bank. You know, a yeah. lot of churches, synagogues, or a lot of rotaries or service clubs will support one food bank and that, that rallies with their time and their money. So if you had 10 or 12 of those organizations supporting an initiative for the community, then you do the work, it's their vision, and you partner their money in your work. And then there is earned revenue. And there's a, you know, you have to be careful here. If it's mission related, it's okay. It doesn't become taxable. Like in Cerevision, we have leadership where it's the Leadership Foundation. We have leadership content that brings in revenue, but there's a number of, number of ways. Amazon Smile is a way to create a little bit of revenue from people buying books and stuff. But there's, there's businesses that business principles that you can implement. So these are some eight fundamental ways. Now, if you have an endowment fund, there's also interest income from uh, investments. Right. And if you right. have real estate, somebody donated or you were able to acquire some real estate and you were able to rent it out, that's another, another track. So there's potentially 10, but eight that all organizations could do. So you want to comment on the list? Sure. Yeah. So I think one thing I'll just say, as we look at all eight of these, is that, you know, some some folks watching this are going to look and say, well, you know, maybe we're only doing three or four of those or two of them or six of them. And I think the key here is making sure that there isn't too much money coming from one pot. and within those pots, within these eight pots, you also don't want it at a lot a high percentage of your money coming from one particular sub pot, like grants. You don't want too much money coming from one foundation. Donations, you don't want too many things coming from one thing. Events is really, really important with this because I know organizations that were getting 50% of their income from it, from a one or two annual events before COVID. Well, guess what? <laughs> they didn't have an event in 2020. They didn't have one in 2021. And their 2022 event, they're not really sure how that's gonna look right now. So they ended up in a really bad situation, not having enough revenue. Same thing can happen with the foundation. The foundation changes their, their focus. And all of a sudden they're not giving anymore. Well, guess what? If they're only 2% of your budget, no big deal. So the plan giving stream is really important too, because if you're constantly investing in a plan giving program every year, you're slowly building that up. And what you're doing is you're creating a revenue stream and preferably building an endowment, because that's really what you want. You want your plan gifts to go is into an endowment. But sometimes people need to use them for other reasons. And that's understandable. But you want to create this stream that's going long before the development person has has left. Long after, long after the development person, long after the CEO, a whole new board, and you've got gifts coming in that were seeds were planted 20, 30, and 40 years ago. One of the organizations that I worked for recently has a 
50 plus million dollar endowment. The majority of that endowment was built on three gifts, two from one individual and one from a third individual. I would say $40 million of that came, more than 40 million came from those three gifts and they were all planned gifts. Wow, and most of us don't know anything about that. So what are some of the um, things that you mentioned before, things that we do wrong when we're running an organization? You mentioned we want to go right to the results. So the, in my mind, we have, we have mental, um, mental capital. We have the products, the services, the offerings that we, we do to feed people, close people, help people. So that's, that's our, 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 our really our funding. I mean, that's, that's really an asset. And you want a financial asset. Well, in the middle is a relationship asset. And so we tend to skip over that. So you you alluded to that. We talk about this often. Talk about how important relationship is in this this whole process of getting funded. Yeah, it it's it's really for me, it's it's not only the most important thing, it's almost the only important thing. Because if it's not there, then you might get a gift and you might get a few gifts, but you're not going to maximize the potential for that, for the organization or for the donor. I mean, the donors in this too. I mean, they're giving for a reason. Most likely they're not just writing a check because they felt like signing their name that day and putting a dollar amount next to it and dropping it in the mail to a stranger. They're giving because they, care about that what the organization is doing and the impact they're having so if, if we're not building a relationship we're not only we're hurting both sides of that equation we're not maximizing what we could for the organization but we're also not respecting what that donor's interest is so the relationship is is just is just beyond i mean i tell every time i do a presentation i say that successful fundraising is not about money. It's about relationships. Um, and it's, it's not a means to an end. The, getting the gift, it's not a means to an end. It's a means to the future of, of what can happen over time. And how, I mean, just think about what we can do for these donors and building that relationship. They increase their giving. They do more. They, they may be even being a board member, who knows, but they get involved in events, they get involved in telling their friends about the organization, and they tell their friends, hey, this is why I support this organization, because this is what they do. But the really great thing about what they do is they really treat me like a king or a queen. You know, I feel so special when they come out and see me. I feel special when I go to events. They just treat me very, very specially. And they're always so grateful for what I do. And you know what? That's the best referral you could ever has, have as a nonprofit executive. That's great. So thinking in, in part, people don't accidentally leave a large amount in their will for a random nonprofit. And typically it's somebody that's been involved, has been involved at a higher level, um, creating impact for other people. And they and they also, there's a trusted relationship. They understand that 
their donation is going to, well, it's going to help you create a legacy that is that that it's going to be ongoing after after we're here. So if we create something valuable, we certainly want it to continue. So that's a to me the prime example of relationship building. And you don't unless you've got a unless I want to talk about fundraising professionals too. Yeah, um, unless you got somebody working with you, early stage nonprofits and very small nonprofits, a lot of weight falls on the executive director. Um, right. So talk about talk about um, setting the stage for planned giving because that's I think that's an underutilized channel. And then talk about how how the the board and the executive can navigate that. And then then we'll jump to after after that. Let's talk about getting your first uh, fundraising executive on board. So talk about without the fundraising professional first. Now, it's not reasonable in my experience to expect board members to go out and raise money. <laughs> it just doesn't happen, does it? Yeah, it, it really doesn't. And uh, they there are some board members who like to raise money. They, they actually like to go out and ask for money from their friends. Um, it's, for some of them, it's kind of a game. Uh, they they do trade-offs, you know, they've got their project and their other friends got their project and they go out and they they do some horse trading and they they get gifts from each other. And there's a there's a whole there's a whole realm of that too, but that's not the world that most of us live in. So trying to get board members engaged in fundraising, the best way to do it is I think the best way to do it with most board members is not so much having them out asking for money. Some board members, we don't want asking for money because they're not comfortable with it. And you put the, you're putting a square peg in a round hole and guess what? The donor's gonna see that and they're gonna realize, you know, what's this person doing out here? Um, and, and it's not gonna be as successful as it, it embarrasses everybody, it makes people feel bad. And that's how you lose friends and, and you lose donors and you lose relationships. So, Oh, the area that I like, and, and I have a really great example of it because I got a call on Sunday from a, a board member of an organization that my wife and I support, and she was calling to thank us for our gift, and she invited us to come out for a tour uh, of, the, of the facility that we support. It's an um, organization that helps people in a variety of ways, free clinic, food bank, um, financial assistance, whole, the whole thing. And so, um, but I thought it was great. So she says, I'm a board member, just wanted to call and thank you. And I, I'm thinking, you know, as a fundraiser, I'm thinking, good job board member <laughs> and good job person who asked the board member to do that because that's the way they should be doing it. And then about an hour later, I got an email from her just saying, hey, I left you a message and basically left the same information. Here's how to find me. So if you can engage board members in that, one is it's a lot of fun. Who doesn't want to call some up and thank them? Who doesn't want to take somebody out for coffee or lunch or meet them after work and tell them what, what their gift is doing to make a difference in the organization? It's a great thing to have board members do, and most of them will would love to do it. And if they're not sure they're going to like it, I guarantee you they're going to do it one time, and they're going to be addicted. And you're going to give them, they're going to want more names, and they're going to want to call people and because it's fun. It, they're going to love it so that and and kind of bridging on to that to that plan giving piece you know here's that relationship building of having that board member go out i'm not suggesting board members talk about plan giving most of them aren't going to be qualified for or comfortable with it but what they've done is you've just had a board member contact a donor 
the board, the donor's probably going to be pretty impressed that the board member called. I was pretty impressed on Sunday when I got that message that, that they took a board member took the time to call me. Um, and so I looked at it from the plan giving standpoint of it's all these different touch points from different people that, that build that. If somebody's going to make a plan gift, they've got to have, they can't just believe in what you're doing today. And they can't believe in what you're going to do in five years. They have to believe in the organization and the leadership and the transitional leadership in that organization that it's strong enough to make a gift to that they may not get for 10, 20, or 30 years. And so they've got to feel that the longevity is there, the leadership is there, the mission is there, that they're going to make that, that investment. So I think it comes, it's, it's not an easy gift to get, I guess is what I'm saying. They're not easy gifts to get. And the, the point that you made sort of about the, uh, about when people sort of, when do they decide to make a gift like this? And, and what encourages them to make a gift and what category they are in. I've had donors that have been giving me 10 and 20 and $50,000 a year, make a plan gift. I've had donors that have never given us a dime, give six figures. Um, one of the largest bequests I ever got was $650,000. And it was from someone that not only I didn't know, but nobody in the organization knew and they were not in our database. So they had never given us any money, or if they did, it was before we were keeping records. So it was like 40 years ago. Well, you've just highlighted one of the big flaws. We tend to look overlook people who aren't donors. We don't think are capable or will do it. So there's no overlooking anybody, is there? Right. And this goes back to what we talked about very early on, which is the, the character and the integrity. We talk about character and integrity as an individual quality of a person but organizations have them have it too organizations have character and integrity so people are watching and and people who are listening to this now or 10 years from now people are watching you they're watching you and they're watching your organization and if they see what they like they may not be able to give you money right now or they just may not for whatever reason they may have other other obligations, other things, taking care of their kids, taking care of their parents or grandparents, all over the map. But, you know, they make a little note and they say, you know, Center Vision Leadership Foundation, I've been watching that guy, you, and I like what he's doing and I can't do anything for him now, but when I get ready to do this, I'm going to make sure they get some, some money to further this mission because I believe in it a lot. I just can't do it right now. So yeah, and, and that's one example I gave of that six-figure six gift. I've seen this happen. I'll, I will make a statement that is completely accurate. I have gotten more bequests in my career from people that I did not know and that we did not have a relationship with. And this doesn't mean that we didn't try to have a relationship, but these are people that we did not know and they were not on our radar. I've gotten more bequests from them than from people that I had a relationship with. That's fascinating. So thinking yeah. back over some of the some of the things we do wrong, all of us do wrong, um, is underestimating somebody who might have a lot of potential, focusing on a few large donors. I heard you talking about not putting all your eggs in one basket because they could go away. Instead, you want to have 
yes, focus on them, but how about all the small donors? Suppose you have a thousand people giving a thousand dollars, $25 a month. They aren't all going to leave at once unless you break that integrity thing. Also, we, we underestimate how much of our, in the aggregate, all the donors make up a large portion of our budget. We tend to think that grants are a shoe in. You write a grant, you get money. Hmm, what wisdom do you have about grants and what do we do wrong? Well, I think I think probably the the first thing and the one that I hear the most from foundations <laughs> that we do wrong is we we don't do enough research hmm. and we don't find out what they want to fund, how much they might give. I'm talking about a range. I'm not saying you know you pinpoint it, but it's it's fairly easy to go online these days and find out what kind of qualifications the organization has to have, a range of how much they give, and the other details that you need to know of whether or not this organization would even be interested in funding the, the entity or the particular program that they're wanting to fund. And then of course, how much, you know, how much is it gonna be? So I think that's the number one thing. I think the other thing that we don't do enough when it's possible is to connect with and communicate with the executive at the foundation and, and pick up the phone or send an email and say, hey, you know, I've got a couple of questions about this request. Could, could we talk? And can you give me some advice on how, to, how best to pursue this? So I think you just need to, to go after every avenue you can with a foundation because the thing with foundations is that that's not the same with individuals. It's they, I mean, everybody has a limited amount of money to give, but foundations are getting way more, they're getting requests from way more organizations than we are as individuals. I know your mailbox doesn't look that way, but they're getting bombarded and they have a fixed amount of money to give just like we do. They, they've already have their budget set. They know how much money they're gonna give away. Some of that money is already committed because they already have organizations that they give to on an annual basis that they have, that they're, for whatever reason, they have a specific card for that organization. So some money is already gonna be set aside. And then what's left over goes out to these other organizations, unless it's a, a different kind of foundation, maybe it's a community foundation, and, they're they're going to give to they're going to give this much money, but they're going to get probably between I don't even know ten to a hundred times as many applications as they can fund. Yes. So back to the strategy, the um, the defining the purpose of what we do, so people know why why we're so to speak in business. What why are we doing this? And that. To me, that's that's skipped over a lot. We go to right to what we do, and people understand why it's important. And then, okay, right. there's a, there's one model is the problem. Here's our solution. Here's how we do it differently, which shows that you've done your research, that you know there's other organizations, but they're not doing exactly what you're doing. So it's right. in, in our world, it's differentiation. This is what we do, and it's right. not offered the same way uh, in this. Right. And then right. the other piece is clearly defining the impact. What 
are the results that are going to happen. And right. you talked about the um, the foundations want to focus on what they want to give money to. We won't see these things happen. So you're required to do the administration of the grant, which means reporting how you use the money and the results. Now, we don't required to do that with donors, but there is a value in reporting back of what's happened, isn't there? Right. Yeah. And and if and the research that's been done, Hugh, on there's extensive research that's been done on donor attrition. And the the top among the top reasons that donors only give to an organization one time or only give for a few years and then disappear is usually one of two reasons. One is they don't feel appreciated, which means they're not getting the right kind of thank you. They're not getting any thank you. They're not getting enough thank yous or they're not getting them to the right people depending on how much money that they gave. The second, which is um, what you're talking about right now, which is the results. How did they use my money? Did, I, did it make a difference? What are they doing with it? And where do things stand now that I made this gift? Or where's the organization today? And where, you know, as opposed to when I made the gift. So, and you know, sending out newsletters is great. Uh, gives people information, generic information about what's happening. But <clears throat> if you're gonna have a relationship, it has to be a personal relationship. So what you're wanting to do is, uh, I was just looking at a, a cartoon and it was a business cartoon, but it perfectly relates to this. And it was, you know, how how many of our, I'm going to translate it into fundraising. How many of our donors do we want to have a personal relationship with? And the answer is, as many as you want making the next gift. And the, the, the more personal that relationship is, the more that person understands the individual that's asking for the money, the more that person understands what the organization was doing is doing with that money today, what they're going to be doing in one, two, and five years is the key to someone staying engaged and not feeling like a stranger because we don't have relationships with strangers. But a lot of times organizations treat their donors like strangers. They send them a, uh, they get an email. This is my number one pet peeve in fundraising. I make an online gift, not big, it's $100. Some, for some people, that's big. For me, it's money. It's not huge, but it's, it's money. $100, I make an online gift, and I click the button, and I look, and boom, I get the email that says, thank you for your gift. We appreciate whatever else done. That's the only thing I hear from the organization. I don't get a letter in the mail that thanks me for the gift. I don't get a letter from a person. And I'm not saying this happens with every organization, but it happens more than it ought to. And uh, I would say um, recently out of, out of maybe five or six gifts that I made, uh, I'm gonna say half of them did not send a, a letter from a person that said, thank you. 
the person, the, the thing that thanked me when I made the gift was a computer. A computer automatically sent me a message and said, thank you. And I said, well, that's nice computer, but I want you to hear from the person whose fake signature is on there. Or I want a, a note, I want a letter, I want something that tells me that a human being saw that gift and thought enough of it to thank me for it. So there's two parts of fundraising. A, getting the gift, and then two, getting it on a re recurring basis. And, right. and what you're talking is donor relations, it's nurture, it's really an effective communication system. People who want to support you but they are also people and we don't want to be treated that way, but we time and time again, hide behind the excuse. Oh, I'm too busy. When in fact, if you're too busy, maybe you should step back and reorder your time because you've got to have the, it's like we build a car and we sometimes learn to drive it, stay between the white lines, you know, but it doesn't go anywhere until we put gas in the, in the tanks. The funding is like the gas to drive the car, even though we got the strategy and the people. Hmm. Yeah. They might be trained. We've got to have something that, that drives it forward. So right. yeah. are there other things that we, uh, we, we're going a little long today, folks, because it's such an important topic. And I've got this export cornered, expert cornered today. So are there other um, things you'd like to mention that we haven't talked about yet about ensuring fundability? Well, I'll tell you just you you basically touched on these two things that I was going to mention. So I'll so I'll expound very quickly on on both of them. Um, one is we don't want to treat people like we want to be treated because we don't know how they want to be treated. We want to treat them the way they want to be treated. And the key is to find out how they want to be treated through phone calls, correspondence, personal visits. What do they want from us? How much information do they want? How many, how many times do they want to see us? Do they want to see us at all? I've had donors say, don't waste your time coming out here to see me. You're a long ways away. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I care about what you guys do. And I appreciate your phone call. And we'll have a nice conversation. But don't waste your time and your gas coming out here to see me. Fabulous. Okay, now I know. I'll make a note. <laughs> you know? Don't, don't put this person on a schedule list to go out and visit them, but call them and keep them updated on what they're doing and thank them for, for being conscious of, of our, you know, of our budget and that sort of thing. The other thing you mentioned, which is, yeah, people get so busy that they're, they're, they're cutting the bait and they're cutting the bait and they're cutting the bait, but they're not going fishing. And so if they're too busy, if a fundraiser is too busy to contact donors, huge problem. If an executive director is charged with fundraising and they're too busy running the organization and doing management stuff and they can't raise money, then we need to restructure the organization from a personnel standpoint. And we need to create a situation where those individuals are, are freed up. Um, and I've been in a situation before where I've had too much responsibility and it was hard to break out of that and get where I needed to be. So the key is get people in those positions who you can trust to do the other work. Delegate everything you can that isn't, doesn't involve donors as much as you can. Keep, you know, obviously you got to keep a handle on other things, but 
if you're the person that's charged with going out to see donors and visiting donors and calling donors, and you're making one phone call a week, sending one note a week and going on one visit a week, not gonna get very far. Uh, and by the way, as a part of that, it takes three in a, in a typical organization. I'm not talking about somebody that's raising $20,000 a year. And I'm not talking about somebody that's raising $20 million a year. I'm talking about a, but an organization that's raising probably has a budget of somewhere between a quarter of a million and a million dollars, maybe, maybe a little bit more. When you get up into that half a million dollar range plus, and especially if you get closer to a million, you need to start looking at having three people involved in fundraising. Because you're not going to get to the next level if you don't have three individuals that are spending time doing this. Well, and it also, um, it's an engagement tool. I hear over and over, my board's not engaged. If we had right. the proper training and we gave them the scripts or the, the pathway, right. then that lets them feel like they're doing something important. All too often when we bring people on the board, we don't let them do things they're capable of. Certainly, they're enthusiastic about the work that they're performing and they can share it right. with other people. So that's yeah. that's one of the, the yeah. really good things that that I take away today, plus the, yeah. the other things you talked about. Yeah. So Jeffrey, this has been extremely helpful. And I don't care what level you are in your organization's development, going back and remembering the basics. And like you said at the onset, um, it's some of the same stuff we, we should have always been doing. It's just a lot more important that we do these fundamental things today because there's a lot of people out there looking for funding and we need to show up at the first visit being capable and being very clear on why we're doing something, the impact it's going to have. Right. Yeah. And and for anybody that hasn't hasn't left their their home in uh, several years, <laughs> customer service is sorely lacking in pretty much every industry right now. And if you look at the organizations that have the that are doing the best financially retaining quality staff and excelling overall. Look at the organizations that are doing that. They're the ones that are doing well right now. Um, you know, uh, Chick-fil-A is a great example of an organization who's focused on customer service. The place is busy all the time. It's just, there's people flocking to Chick-fil-A because you get treated with respect. You get what you ordered. It's done right, and they say thank you. <laughs> and so, and and this is same in the corporate sector. You look at the organizations that are doing things really well, treating people with respect. Apple computer is a great example. Uh, treating people with respect, treating privacy with respect. They're just doing really, really well. And nonprofits are the same way. If you treat people well and you provide a high level of customer service people walk away feeling really good about the individual the organization and what they received they're going to come back and they're going to tell their friends about it and that is brilliant that is the essential piece of being fundable right there in that summary 
Jeffrey Falgon, thank you for sharing your abundant wisdom and experience with us on the nonprofit exchange today. My pleasure, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Thank you for watching the nonprofit exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>